Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to this week's episode of the Insider Outsider Podcast. We are pleased to have three guests along with my co-founder, Bill Proudman. Uh, we've got three execs, retired executives from Georgia Power and Southern Company. We've got Frank McClowski, who was for a long time the chief diversity officer, one of the first straight white men in the U.S. to be a chief diversity officer in a large corporation. He was retired about 11 years ago. Pete Ivey is a retired executive from Southern Company, so the holding company for Georgia Power. He worked there and other energy companies. And Ronnie Noble also retired Georgia Power about two years ago. So welcome, gentlemen. You went through your learning labs, the Whiteman's Caucus, maybe multiple ones, Frank, for you. You probably could have to teach it after all the labs that you went through. I want to turn it over to Bill You've had a strong connection with all three of these guys. What what would you frame up as the things you want them to share? Michael, thanks. First, Frank and Ronnie and Pete, I'm really delighted to sort of reconnect after all these years. It is music to my heart when we get to sort of come full circle with clients, now friends, that we've had the privilege of watching you do courageous work moving the ball forward. And when I say ball forward, that involves missteps as well. So I want to talk with you today about the learnings of the last, when you were at Georgia Power, the work that you did, which was started around 2000, if I'll try to remember what the date was. That was 20 years ago. Is that right, Frank? Yes, that's correct. 2000. I don't remember exactly the call, but when we first spoke, what I was struck by, obviously, as a straight white man in a vice president slash chief diversity officer role for a major company. It was highly unusual then. It's still highly unusual. And you and I have chatted about that over the years. I think at one point it was Steve and you, you and Steve Bucaretti at Coca-Cola, also in Atlanta, that were the only two straight white guys that I knew of that were running diversity initiatives for large companies in the U.S. at the time. Frank, what was the impetus? How did you get into that role? Let's start there. And then what happened? Yeah. Unfortunately, as with most corporations, the uh, reason the position was created in the first place was not because of vision. Georgia Power Company was in the middle of a discrimination class action lawsuit. This was following the $192 million class action settlement by Coca-Cola. You mentioned Steve Bucarati. He actually became their chief diversity officer after I was named the vice president of diversity at Georgia Power Company. So, and the same plaintiff lawyers who handled the Coke case were also handling the case against Southern Company and Georgia Power Company. So, David Ratcliffe, who had just been named the CEO of Georgia Power Company, was greeted with this lawsuit. David is, and Ronnie and Pete will will tell you this, David is an incredible person that was always concerned, not only about the business results, how you care for people, 
But he was always interested in that cultural piece. What's the organizational culture? How is it benefiting or not benefiting people? So when he first asked me to do this role, I said, David, you know, you don't put a guy like me in the role. And he says, no, you, you're exactly what I want because you came out of the, the operational side. You got, as with Pete and Ronnie, organizational credibility. And if we're ever going to change the culture at Georgia Power Company, which was a 135-year-old company, and until the last couple decades was predominantly white men, Christian, heterosexual, you know, strong, successful men in an organization. But if we're ever going to change the culture, we got to change the subtleties of the culture that's creating the mistrusts or employees feeling isolated. And because we were going through a discrimination lawsuit, it was not primary, it was really focused initially on blacks and women and other minorities. But he said there's also issues here that if you're a white guy, you're not necessarily feeling all that warm and comfortable about being in a company, even though we're a very wonderful, fine company. But there were still people who felt isolated. And so he wanted to really go down the track. Yes, we're going to install a diversity effort, but he really was trying to wrap it around more of a long-term organizational culture and management change process. Yeah, and I think, Frank, that really goes to at least of our 25 years now of work, where the difference between what is long-term success in many organizations like you know, Georgia Power and others is seeing it as a culture change initiative rather than some training event that needs to solve some presenting issue that somehow maybe magically will go away. And I know the culture work is hard. It's a little bit like moving water because when you push on it, it goes different directions and you've got to persevere. So when we got started, and Ronnie, this is you and, and Pete come into the equation. Frank, or the three of you, could you sort of walk us through how you decided to sort of introduce this, at the time, a novel concept of doing diversity work, particularly with our demographic groups, straight white guys. Because then, Frank, you and I have chatted about this along the way. I've had, this just happened last week, actually. People of color really questioned the sincerity and genuineness of white men being in this space, number one. And secondly, what little power a lot of underrepresented and marginalized groups of color and women have gotten there's a concern like that, that we're now trying to take back what little glimpse of executive C-suite room that has been created. So there's a lot of forces that move against us being involved in the way that Georgia Power and Ronnie, you and Pete got involved with this work and others behind you. Talk a little bit about how that got started. What were some of the challenges, opportunities in the early days? And, and I think Frank, you probably got some pushback yourself for being a white male chief diversity officer internally. Yeah, and Michael, I don't even know if I understood what I was stepping into when I took on the job. So really, the, the beginning of the organization, I mean, there was so much expectation. There was so much creative tension in the company. And so we were just trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? What are going to be the initiative? We knew that if we were going to have a long-term culture change, we had to look at all those systems and processes. So it had to do with your HR processes of who was hired, who got selected for jobs, you know, how were your employee concerns processes handled, 
who was being trained and developed. So we knew that was the case. But under all of this was knowing that this organization, this, this successful company, had been built by predominantly white, straight, Christian, able-bodied men. That was the culture piece that we had to figure out what was working for it and what was not working for it. We were not making any value judgment that it was either good or bad. It was a lot of good aspects to it, but there was also aspects to it that was creating exclusion instead of inclusion. So that was the piece. I'll never forget Harriet Watkins, who was the first diversity manager at the time, came back from a conference bill that you and Michael had in, in Arizona. And she says, Frank, I've just come back from the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And she explained how you all define white culture. And she says, this is something that I think many blacks and others who are not white and male try to figure out, but it was never explained in such a concise way. And she says, we've got to start working with this group because that defines who our culture is. That was the reason Ronnie and Pete were brought in because they are seen as, first of all, excellent executives, people, people. They got, they got results done, so they had strong operational credibility, but yet they weren't pushovers. So if we could get Pete and Ronnie to go and to come back and tell us, does this process, does this development work for Georgia Power Company, we're going to go on what your recommendation is and go forward, and, and we're going to figure out how we can take your knowledge and this experience and expand it. And that was the reason Pete and Ronnie were there is that they were not coming out of HR. They spoke the language of the company, people related to them. And that's why they were the first to go to the uh, White Mill Caucus. And so Pete and Ronnie, and Ronnie, I heard you say it was, you thought it was like 2002. None of us can remember exactly what year it was, but my recollection is the two of you showed up at one of our open enrollment labs. You came to one where there's men from other companies, and you were sort of like the, the guinea pigs to check it out. What was that like, if you can remember back there, before you got into that thing about when you got the call or the email from Frank or whatever it was, what was going on in your brain at that point? It was like, you know, I would just say the first thing when Frank called and talked about it and stuff, and he said, hey, I'm going to send you a request, you know, and do, I'm like, you want me to go to an event? <laughs> Full diversity partners. <laughs> this environment that we're dealing with. And I was like, I'm not real sure I want that on my calendar. <laughs> because my calendar was open to folks so they could see, you know, where I was at. You know, I let all my managers and stuff be able to see and look. And I'm like, hmm, this is going to be interesting. And I will say there was apprehension, concern. You know, I grew up and worked in a company where I never thought anything different about myself than any other person I was working with. But Lord, what did we learn? It was a great experience, still a great experience to this day of what we learned and what we were able to take away from that. But yeah, there was a little bit of apprehension, but it was well worth all the time spent. Thanks, Ronnie. Pete, what about you? What what, what do you remember from that time when Frank reached out to you and yeah, I think two things. First of all, I would characterize myself as a skeptic at the time, <laughs> diversity training. And uh, Frank will tell you, he and I, we butted heads over a number of issues surrounding what the right path forward was and where the company was versus what the perceptions were 
relative to inclusion and diversity and and representation, which at the time I was late 30s, early 40s. And candidly, I saw representation and diversity and inclusion as all the same thing, which they are not. So I was a skeptic. I had exactly the same experience that Ronnie did. My calendar was open to all all of my subordinates. And one of them came barging in the room and wanted to know what this white supremacy thing was I was going to. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, the same thing. What's all you white males going to go to a meeting together for? So you guys do have some challenges just based on the name that you're probably still living with today because that was experience. Nonetheless, so going in skeptical as I was of all training programs until I saw what the content was. And I would say that the few days that we spent there were life-changing in a lot of ways, not in some kind of spectacular go-to-the-mountain type life change, but more along the lines of creating a framework for questions that I asked myself two weeks ago, as a matter of fact, that came from an awareness of, you know, the culture that we live in and, and how individuals that have to operate within that culture see it based on, you know, their own worldview and their own background experience, ethnicity, you name it. So I would characterize it as a few days over which, what was the term you guys used? I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. I went from, I didn't know what I didn't know to, hey, there's two or three things I don't know. And that led to, after coming back in the years since, a steady growth fits and starts, I'll admit, I make mistakes. Some of them way stupider than, than I'm willing to talk about. But the, the point being that it started a process, it lit a fuse within me that burns today. Thank you, Pete, for that. I think for Pete, Ronnie, and, and, and you, Frank, as well, those insights that came, not just maybe, well, maybe came from the caucus. And by the way, for the folks that are listening, what we're talking about is a, a four-day residential experience that we, we started, our firm started in 1997. And we've run hundreds of these since in Europe and the U.S. now. And it's an experience that's designed for men who identify as a member of the white group. They may or may not be heterosexual. But it's really us doing some work with one another to contradict the notion that the outsiders or, or people from groups that have been historically marginalized or underrepresented in companies like yours have to teach, guide, coach, mentor, and lead on issues of inclusion. And so it's try to sort of push against that. And so that experience is just sort of, for me, it's like an opening of a door into that parallel universe. So for the three of you, my question is, what key learnings? ahas. Pete, when you say you went from uh, you didn't know that you didn't know to now you know two or three things that you now know you don't know, what were those things and how have you applied that learning over your career? And I just heard you say even a week ago. So this is a, what'd you learn? How has it showed up over your personal and or professional life? Pete, you want to start us off since you just talked about one last week, maybe? Yeah, sure. I guess I would, I would characterize it this way. Before I went, before we started the work at Georgia Power, I would have characterized myself as viewing the world this way. I am not racist. I am not prejudiced. The way I was raised and what I've learned from you know my college years and my experience here with this company, I know that in my heart. And most of the work, if there is work that needs to go on, is with other people. The experience there especially because we were able to compare notes between others who had a similar 
in a background with the same ethnicity, the work there, understand that the world is a very different place than I imagined, number one. Number two, I do have prejudices. If I'm honest with myself and I'm really seek to understand what those are based on and how it affects the way I treat other people, it leads to recognition that I need to make changes in my own life. Then separate and apart from that kind of, of internalized learning, which, as I said, is it's not something that you go and you learn in four days and then you've got that knowledge and you apply it. It's that you learn that you have work to do. It's, it's similar to you know someone who says, I want to be the world's best cross-country skier. You can't just go look and then you've got to practice, you got to practice, you got to practice, you got to make mistakes and, and stick with it. Translating all of that into, okay, what am I going to do about all this? How am I going to make a difference? How can this new awareness of my own perceptions help me understand how my other white male managers see the world versus the managers that work for me that are female or people of color, black, that that work takes on a, a whole new meaning. So I spent a lot of time after the experience there really seeking to come up with a plan for, you know, what was I going to do differently and how is this going to change the way I managed, the way I led, and how does that translate into making a difference that is broader and more impactful in terms of seeking business success? Pete, let me ask you before we move on to Ronnie and Frank, in terms of you said you made a plan. Can you give us, people that are listening, one example of something that was an aha that you had that you, you know, spent the next Gladwell's 10,000 hours over the couple of decades since then really getting better at? What that look like? What's an example of how that, what that looked like for you? Yeah, so what that looked like? An awareness that females in my organization faced a different world than I did. That's the learning. What that looked like in terms of how I explored making a difference going forward was I developed two training courses that I would personally produce and perform as the vice president of the organization. One of those was on interview skills, and the other was on sexism in our workplace. And the interview skills was open to all of my employees, and I would basically schedule it. They would sign up for it, and then we would go into it. And we covered in detail conversations. Keep in mind, I I was no expert, so I wasn't teaching. I was learning as much as they were. But when you sit a bunch of people in a room and you talk about what's your experience interviewing, and you have a black female talk about what it's like to go into a room full of white males and perform in an interview situation and how different that is for that individual than it is for others, it creates a tremendous positive conversation, if you will. It's not positive in the moment. It's painful in the moment. But at the end of the day, nobody leaves there without having learned something about what others see. And then the course on sexism I did just with females in the organization. And it was specifically focused on, at the early onset, I guess you might call it how to get along in a white male culture and be successful as a female. And I realize now, really actually realized after a couple of years of that, how I was still, I was perpetuating the, perpetuating the problem to some extent. And we made some adjustments. So both of those things evolved over time, the, the, the course on interview skills and the, and the course on sexism. Thank you. I, I love the, bringing that into focus with those two examples is great. And it's a great example of helping yourself and others get more comfortable being uncomfortable without feeling like you then have to be paralyzed because you don't know exactly what to do. I love the fact that you don't need to be an expert and you can be leading an effort like you did. Great modeling, Pete. 
Ronnie, what about you? How have the, anything you've learned impacted you over the last 20 years? You know, the, the first thing was, is, uh, I could echo Pete, is the realization is, you know, I grew up the same way thinking that, you know, everybody was all equal, everything was fine. My, my background had taught me that we were all picked up by our bootstraps, you know, that type of life. But the realization was that I found out, yes, I did have prejudice. Yes, you could have a racist background but how do you learn and grow from that and going forward and some of those things i picked up from the caucus was you know what what to do different how to engage not to be fearful to even engage other folks of color or females and have a deeper discussion than hey just hey how are you doing that kind of thing so um the other thing that i did learn and this i have to give this one credit to pete was just when we would come back on the plane, we were kind of talking about what could we use from this. And one thing we both realized, and Pete said, well, I got a reset button. I got the ability now that when I screw up, mess up or something, I can hit the reset button, recalibrate myself and, and say, hey, I'm sorry, and be able to you know have a discussion about something and move forward. So I would say when I came back and started with my own folks, I said, I need to work with my leaders, and most of those folks were managers, supervisors, and being able to have a discussion with them and being able to step them into discussion. Because a lot of times, you know, they didn't want to go in that realm of talking about different things. And there was times when we'd have meetings, and, you know, I had females on my staff, and one of the most powerful ones I can remember is female, we came up, we said, well, we got to come up with a solution to a problem. The female spoke up, had a perfect solution. And before I could even open my mouth, two of my other white males in the room said, well, I really think we ought to do this. Didn't even recognize she was in the room. And I said, stop, time out. And they all looked and I said, so-and-so down here said the exact same thing. Why didn't y'all listen to her? You could have heard a pin drop in the room. I said, she had the greatest idea, and all you two knuckleheads did was just take her idea and reset it so it would make yourselves look good, sound good. And I said, she's the one that had the idea. Why did, why did we sit in here in this room and not listen to her? What a discussion. And she was like, my God, somebody recognized I'm in the room. And I said, guys, this is part of what growing up and learning and doing different and understanding how we need to change culture and be able to listen to each other and realize that everybody has a right to say something. But I said, we do this all the time. All the time we try to talk over everybody because this is kind of what white males like to do. What I love about the story you just told is it's a great example of that paradox that we talk about all the time about both challenging and supporting. I noticed that your challenge to those other men about why are we doing this? Did you notice that? And that was then added to your invitation to say, we can do this better, which is different than basically just a punitive don't ever do this again, which at times I see myself and our group. We're adept at challenging each other. The support stuff sometimes doesn't. So I, I love that story. Thank you so much. Let's actually focus on that a little bit. I think the one of the hardest the hardest things after 
a white men's caucus or that deep learning experience for us as white guys is to go back and have conversations with other white men. It can be easier to talk to people of color, women who are hungry to hear men own our what we didn't know we didn't know piece, but to go back to other white guys and they're like, yeah, you drank the diversity Kool-Aid or whatever. It's like, what has that been like for any of you? You just described a beautiful example, Ronnie, of your willingness to challenge. I'm imagining sometimes it didn't always go so well. What have you all learned about engaging our own group? Michael, I would say it opened up some wonderful conversations with people of color, females and others that would come to me and say, hey, I heard you, I saw you, can I ask you some questions? And when I did, that gave me an opportunity to talk about my going through the caucus, what my learning was. It exposed me to them. I can remember different females of color and and other black males saying, I've never had this discussion with a white male. It's just mind-blowing to have this. I'm just blown away. But now when I got back to my white male friends, I can remember some of them Dude, you have lost your mind. What is going on? But my challenge back to them was, I said, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid to have a discussion about that you might have some prejudice, that you might not be willing to have you know, tough discussions or having a great, rich conversation with a fellow manager or subordinate? And usually when you push back on them, they would then dig a little deeper and say, well, tell me what you did. And I always remember that the one exercise we did where y'all read the questions two steps forward, one step back. And the great realization was is to be able to share with folks, even white males are different amongst themselves. And a lot of times they don't realize it. They realize they're all in a group together, but they don't realize that they're even differences among themselves. To be able to explain that to them is a pretty powerful experience that I was able to use to share with them, hey, you need to do something different. A great experience. Yeah. It sounds, Ronnie, like you were courageous and not afraid to have conversations with all different groups. No. I, I felt if, if I didn't, it's going back to what Pete said, you know, there's times when I I didn't do as well, but I would learn from it. But if I was going to put it in place, I had to go back and use it. And I had a great experience of learning a lot, and it helped me understand how folks that I worked with, worked around, some that were for me, where were they at? What were they thinking? What was going on with them? And how to engage them to get more out of them, to make, take down the walls and the barriers to be able to get better performance. And to watch some people soar and do and perform so much better, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Frank, what's your take on the challenge of white men coming back and engaging other white men? And what advice do you have for white men today who are learning about these issues that are scared to do that? Yeah. A couple of thoughts. Coming back from the caucus there was this feeling like, you know what, there's a lot of things that I've been trying to figure out. So, you know, I was put in the role as vice president because I had a reputation before that of having some sensitivity toward issues of women and issues for African-Americans. 
And anyone who was a supervisor for me or a manager for me had to go through a pretty intensive racial awareness program. And I think that was one of the reasons why I was put in the job that I was put in. The thinking was because, like Pete and Ronnie said, with that operational experience, we have voices sometimes that things are heard differently than if a black male or woman or someone else was saying it. We'd be saying the exact same thing, but somebody would hear it differently. The fascinating thing is that Pete and Ronnie came back. I was able to get more support to do and get more folks to go into the white male caucus because it was their voice that came back and said, you know what, there's something really good here. And Pete and Ronnie were the ones who were talking to David Ratcliffe, and I was just sitting there listening. Because David, if I said it, well, there could have been this part, well, I have to say that. Or Frank will say anything. You know, he's that. But for Pete, the skeptic, for Ronnie, who's there, for them to say what they said was the whole reason we were able to push deeper into the organization with the whole white male as full diversity partners initiative. And that was part of a st- overall strategy. Mm-hmm. The personal learnings were for me. So even though I thought I had gotten, I, I thought I knew things. So my wife was a uh, very progressive female, successful businesswoman who kept her name. When we got married 45 years ago. So she was very progressive from that standpoint. We had two daughters. So I thought I understood issues around gender going through this race awareness program, I thought I understood racism. So there was this arrogance that maybe I was disguising my biases and my prejudices and my racism. So coming out of the caucus, it really humbled me because you know what? I'm not as far along as I think I am. But what it also was able to do was to give me language that I could express things more willingly than before. Not that it was always going to be perfect, as Ronnie said, but I was willing to put it out there better where I could explain things that other people could understand better, which improved my effectiveness. And if I was being challenged, and this was the big thing in our company, it was hard to challenge somebody who had a higher title than the person who was doing the challenging. So this fear, if I speak out of turn, there's this fear of retaliation. What I was learning that somebody could challenge me you know what, Frank, as a white guy, you're saying this, but as a black female, this is what's really going on. And for me to hear that, to be in the moment, not to try to come up with an answer to fix anything, but to have that enough awareness to say, would you please say more about that? That I could hear more and more and understand deeper and deeper, which only furthered my learning. So that was a wonderful personal experience that I could, I could develop that throughout the rest of my career at Georgia Power Company. The most important part, though, was coming home with with a wife who was struggling with the same crap that a lot of women had to put up with the Georgia Power Company with where she was worked at. We had two daughters who now were beginning a career, and they were putting up with the same crap. So I had a better way of listening to what was going on in their lives without me trying to fix anything. Just to listen, listen, and to say, wow. And for them to feel that maybe I was beginning to understand what they were what they were up against, and I think that had more to do from a personal standpoint than than, than anything else that I've been through from a learning development opportunity. Yeah, 
Pete, is there any comment from you about the challenges of you coming back as a white guy, challenging other white men or talking to them and them not wanting to hear it or resisting it or thinking you're crazy? Because you were skeptic. You came back and they were the same guy that you went to the caucus with. They were like another skeptic, right? How did you engage them with that successfully or not successfully? I would say my experience was pretty different from Ronnie and Frank. <laughs> Frank really understated his willingness to challenge other white male leaders in the company before he went. <laughs> so <laughs> so he, he, didn't, he didn't have any problem challenging anybody before he went. So he just, he just learned how to do it better, is my opinion. Pete, that's exactly, that's spot on, Pete. Thank you very much. That's, that is so true. So true. I was not helping the cause. Yeah. <laughs> so, so for me, I would say this, and I'm really thinking of how to characterize this for others who might be contemplating taking on challenges related to how to really improve inclusion in, in your workplace from a white male perspective. You can say that any other white male that you engage is going to be one of three groups. They're going to be a subordinate, a peer, or, or senior to you. I had some abject disasters when I tried <laughs> to engage. Once I spent some time really thinking about, number one, what was my goal? What was I trying to accomplish? And characterizing, and that would be different depending on whether it was a peer, a subordinate, or, or a senior leader. Once I characterized what it was I wanted to try to accomplish, then I tackled it like I tackled most business problems. What kind of personality do they have? How do they like to get information? What are going to be their biases that I already know about because I've been around them for a while now? And then interaction was a little bit different depending upon those variables. And as I became more mindful about how to have those conversations, I would say that I moved from abject failure to moderate occasional success. This is hard stuff, folks. And unless someone has an experience to really understand that the worldview they've built for themselves is very different than the worldview that others have, until they experience that somehow, talking with each other is not going to have substantial success. You've got to look for opportunities. You've got to come up with a game plan. You've got to think about, okay, this particular individual is senior to me. They are doing things that are damaging to their, the culture of organization that we both work in. Those are bias-based. This is my plan of attack. I'm going to wait for an issue to arise and then seek them out privately and just have a candid conversation. And that's where the courage part comes in. One-on-one -on -one by yourself in the room with your boss and you're saying, look, you hired me to get the job done. We're proceeding as planned. This is an issue that I have, and I want to know what you're going to do about it. And you put the ball soundly in their court, and then you engage on the conversation. And you use the tools that you've, that you've been building up. And I guess what I learned through all that was I really had to do a lot of sharpening the saw. You know, I really had to get my facts, think more about how others are defensive about their views on women, people of other races, people of other sexual orientations in the workplace. How they what their internal defenses are and attack those more strategically. I just found it to be really hard work. And candidly, a lot has to do with the culture from a business perspective, because I worked in cultures that would be characterized as patriarchal, right on through a continuum to cultures that saw themselves as ultimate meritocracies. You have a conversation about issues related to inclusion in an ultimate 
meritocracy, you are up for a real battle. <laughs> it's all about getting the job done, man. It's a, you know, it's not about this touchy feely stuff. And when you're dealing with a, a set of senior leaders who've been raised that way and who are very successful in business that way, and you tell them that there's some things we could do differently, sometimes you just have to default to, I'm going to show you in my chunk of the organization, these are the things we're going to do. Laugh at all you want. Then we're going to have a conversation about whether I was right or not at the end of it. And Pete, I really appreciate what you just said. And I want to contrast that and add to that with Ronnie, what you said earlier and Frank as well. And as I'm listening to this, I'm, I'm reflecting on the last 45 days in our country since the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And our phone in our little firm, we went from no work because of the pandemic to a flood of being overrun with work, particularly around race. And it goes to Pete, something I just heard you say was sort of one of the protester signs that I saw along the way. It said, silence is violence. And as I've been reflecting on the silence, it's the ultimate privilege I have of being in these insider groups that for a long time, early part of my life, I didn't know I was in, which is the privilege of silence, about not speaking up until I have everything in my mind supposedly figured out and know exactly what to say, or I mitigate the collateral damage, or whatever rationale I'm doing. And I've watched other people in my life, including my own wife of 30 years and other colleagues of color basically not have the ability to sort of get it right because they've got to wade in and deal with it in the moment because it's at their doorstep. And so I'm, I'm also recognizing the five of us on here, we're not all the same age, but we're sort of in a similar generation where the, you know, the three of you are retired. Michael and I are still working hard. Some days I want to be retired. Other days I'm still fine with that. As the boomer generation, what advice would you give to white men that are inside companies, great companies like Georgia Power or other places around the globe right now that are basically saying, this is really, you boomers, this is going to end because I don't have this mindset and we've been making this progress and yeah, there's gender inequality, but that's really not a big deal. What advice would you have to the younger generation that might initially dismiss and see this as simply our generation's issue that is now at their doorstep? What would you tell them? I would say, this is great because my daughter is 36 and we've had this discussion with all of the stuff that's going on. And she said, dad, what about all the stuff that you learned when you were at the company? And she said about the thing you went out to the West coast on. She said, how does this relate to this? I said, Ashley, it's to me, it's while it's deep and there's a lot of emotion in it, there's still some overlying things that I think from what I learned that could be applied is number one, people got to do a lot of listening, got to step in and you got to hear the frustration and help them understand, especially folks of the white majority, because they're the ones that are sitting there, like you said, silent. And all of a sudden they're all getting angry. They're getting mad like, well, want to get militant and help them understand from where, why do they think and why are they struggling with what they're seeing and giving them some examples of things they could watch and see to say, you don't have that issue when you go out into the world as a white person, but as a person of color or female, here's the, some of the things they face. Having those discussions, that's what you can learn. That's what you can lean in. That's what you can begin discussions with 
to help folks be able to start understanding where it's come from. The next thing is the realization, and it's still here today, a lot of the rules, written, unwritten, are still from the white culture, white male culture that runs a lot of businesses. Even though a lot of businesses are changing, have more people of color and females moving up into the ranks to help change things, it is still there. And those things have still got to be worked on, acknowledged, to be able to help make those changes systemically over time. And it's going to take white males engaged in that argument and that discussion to help get it there for all of us to be better. Everyone still has to gauge. You can't just say, oh, it's past the boomer time. It's past the white male time. It's going to take all of us to be able to have those discussions and listen to each other to move the ball forward. Thanks, Pete. Peter, Frank, how, what would you add? What, what's the message to the, this current generation that is stepping into these mid and senior level roles now that our generation is headed on to what's next? Pete, I'll go ahead and let you finish up, tap it off. Um, I would say, first of all, if you are going to bed at night and you're really not too uncomfortable with what's happening in the world, you need to check what's going on. That if you're not feeling the struggle and the tensions of folks who are so far out of the mainstream of success, you got to ask yourself, why is that the case? Secondly, if you are upset at any one particular group, then you really need to check your bias to figure out what is it that I have missed understanding why a particular group is feeling the way they are. And we'll use Black Lives Matter as an example. If we don't understand the exhaustion and the frustration that Blacks and so many others have in this country of trying to just get society to own up to all the things that we say we are as a society, and to Ronnie's point, as a corporation, we have all these wonderful values that hang on a corporate wall, but what we say and what we do are different. There's a disconnect, incongruent. And people have tried to tell us over and over and over again, and they're exhausted. And sometimes the last resort is a lawsuit because people who who file lawsuits love the company. That's one of the things we found out with the Georgia Power situation. So you really got to check what is it that I'm missing that I need to understand why someone else feels this way and not to try to fix it or to respond or justify whatever they're saying. Just settle in, listen, and understand. The third thing, all of this talk about meritocity that Pete talked about, this idea we're in post-racial, that's bullshit. Just give it up. It's not that case. And you need to challenge yourself and understand why that is not the case, why we don't live in a post-racial society. And we don't just pull ourselves up by our bootstrings and the one who gets ahead are the ones who work the hardest. And I use, instead of the word white privilege, because I found out, and this was part of the feedback that Ronnie and Pete would give me, you know, they worked hard. They say, Frank, I've worked hard. So when you say privilege to me, I'm offended because I worked for everything I got. Now, maybe I didn't understand the systemic advantage that I had, that's a whole nother discussion. And I can engage with someone who was saying they worked hard, but yet let's talk about maybe you have an advantage in ways that we don't even understand 
that others don't get. If you're black, if you're female, if you're non-Christian, if you're homosexual, whatever your gender identity is. So this idea of systemic advantage and don't feel guilty. This is not about guilt. This is not about blame, but it's just understanding what it is. And then how do I use that systemic advantage to make the world and my corporation and my workplace better for everybody? The last thing I would suggest is have a relationship, have some intellectual curiosity to figure out what's going on, because society is going to give us a script that if you disagree with what the norm is, you're being abnormal. You're the one who has the problem, not the ones who are in the normal place of systemic advantage, who are comfortable, and you're challenging me. You're the problem. I'm really the problem. So in other words, you got to figure out what is it that I don't understand. And the best way to do that is to develop some incredibly trusting relationships with peers who are not like you. So do I really have honest and trusting relationships with someone who's black, someone who's female, someone who's gay, someone who's not Christian, someone, whatever that difference is? that over time that they can begin to be honest with me what is different about their life that's different than my life to understand it, not to fix it, not to justify anything, but to take that and then go into the world and what can I do with this learning to what Ronnie and, and Pete have already said, how they apply it to their lives in practical ways. Thanks, Frank. And before you add, I just want to say, sometimes I feel like I have to just ask people, do you feel the playing field is level? Because if you feel the playing field is level, then all these efforts at diversity, you probably feel are giving right. And it's not until you get that understanding of systemic advantage that you start to see that the playing field is not level. And this is about trying to level the playing field. So the current reality viewpoint you have is what determines how you react to all this diversity efforts and stuff. And that viewpoint has to be challenged. What would you add, let me just say one thing. Michael Pete gave an example earlier that I was not afraid to challenge white men. Problem is, it was like a hand grenade and I should have been using sort of a, a different touch, ask the question. But the playing field was not level. I had a very level playing field because I could challenge those white men in ways that if a black man did, if a black woman did, if another woman did, they've been fired on the spot. I had an advantage because I was saying things and they were seeing me as a one of their kind. And I got away with stuff that a lot of other people would never, ever, ever get away with. Wouldn't even think about saying. So the playing field even there was not level. That's a good example of using our privilege honorably as white men. How can we say things that might not be received by from other people? And I understand, Frank, that you were line exec for what, 25 Plus years, when you got put into the chief diversity officer, sometimes people would say, oh, perceive, oh, he's now an HR guy. And <laughs> take, take away your credibility. He forget that you were a line exec, too, so that you had that challenge, too. Go ahead, Pete. We're going to wrap up in a few minutes. Yep, I'll jump in and I'll uh, piggyback on something that Frank said about listening. My advice would be, and this advice is to a narrow group of individuals who might be listening to this who fit the following three criteria. You're damn good at what you do. Number two, you have an open mind. And third, this is about your business and being successful in your business. If you're in, the, in, in that category, then uh, take a piece of paper 
sit down, come up with six to 10 individuals who come from varied backgrounds, different colors, races, sexual orientation, females, make that list, create a list of questions where you want to explore how they see your business and how it's doing in light of what's going out on out in the world. Yeah. I can't fix what's yeah. going on in the world. You can't fix what's going on in the world. You can make a difference in your sphere of influence. So come up with it. Just say, how do you feel about this stuff? Tell me what you really, and then keep your damn mouth shut. Listen to them. Let them talk. Explore it. After about 10 minutes, they'll start telling you the truth because they've been conditioned not to. And after you sit there and listen and you questions to understand, but don't explain, don't throw out different perspectives. Just say, I want to understand more. I want to understand. If you can get through a list of six to 10, it will change the way you look at how they see your business and help you to understand what you can leverage from what's going on right now. And Pete, if I may say, once you listen and you understood something that maybe you didn't understand before, that's where the real challenge is. What am I going to do different in my behavior to learn from that? Because if that individual is sharing that with me, then in the back of their mind, they're saying, well, did Frank really listen? Is he going to do anything different about it? And if I do something different to show I'm changing my behavior, then that's where those levels, we talk a lot about trust at Georgia Power and Southern Company. That's where am I being seen as trustworthy by someone else's point of view? And that's when the real, if I don't change my behavior, well, it's just like so many things that we've talked about. Well, you're saying this, I hear you're saying all the right things, but damn it, nothing is changing. And I'm frustrated, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, and I just don't know what to do anymore. I could both of y'all, I can remember a prime example of a, a 35-year veteran with a company, black male manager. He and I having a discussion, we got to some of those questions, we broke through. Later, he told me, I really wanted to see if you really were changed. You really yeah. have different behavior. And he saw me in a meeting do something, come back to me later, and he said, Ronnie, I've been here 35 years. I've never had anybody give me the feedback that you gave me to help make me a better person. He said, I can't believe all the smoke I have been blown. He said, I can't <laughs> believe all the garbage I've been heard. He said, but I'm just going to tell you, man to man, he said, thank you. He said, it's been 35 years for find somebody but actually have a great discussion, great feedback. And he said, it's all because you were willing to go and ask questions, learn, and your behavior changed over time. I feel I can trust you now going forward more so than I ever did in, in the past. Wow, you talking about a moment? It was a huge moment. But Ronnie, the one thing that you mentioned there that really resonates with me, and this is something that Michael and Bill would say in those caucuses, if you're doing this for your own self-absorption and gratitude, you're doing it for the wrong reason. Because when we start changing behavior and we're going against the norm, we're going upstream, we're not getting rewarded. There's going to be a lot of folks that said, you know what, you've cut and run from us. You know, I'm cutting you off or I'm ignoring you now or there's some form of retaliation. 
because we're not part of the norm. So if anybody starts down this path, you better get really grounded in why you're doing it because it's not always success stories along the way. And that's what you and Peter are so wonderful about. You, you had challenges, but you never let them stop you from what you were doing and you learn from it and you move forward. And that's, that's the inspirational part. It speaks really well to the white males coming back to talk to other white males and challenging us and taking that risk of losing relationships, losing status, being alienated, seen as the PC police. And I'm inspired by your stories of courage of all of you having those conversations anyway and leaning into it and setting that model of what we as white men can be as full partners and what that looks like, feels like. Um, I love that. And anything else you want to share as we close? Anything else you want to say or including appreciations for each other as colleagues who have supported each other on these, this diversity journey or anything you want to say to the listeners? I think the question some white guys have is, how can I take four days? I don't have four days for anything. Is this really worth four days? Is there a return on my investment? And I'm guessing, I mean, your stories have been successful in terms of diversity, understanding, new leadership skills around listening, probably benefiting your relationships outside of work. I would say, Michael, that, you know, I look back on it. It's been 20 years. Did I have four days back then? No. But those four days changed who I am what I thought about the world and what I came back into the work environment for the next 20 years, it made me much more successful. Yeah, were there times it was frustrating as hell because you could take two steps forward and take 10 back. But what I learned to be able to use to this day, I've had some of the most richest conversations, developed some really great friendships that are other than white male that I may not ever have been able to do or might not even had the courage to do had I not gone through the four days and the subsequent, you know, with partnerships and the next meetings that went on for the next couple of days. But I would just say, hell, it's worth the four days. Make it happen because you're going to learn a lot about your own self that a lot of times you don't even ask yourself until somebody puts you in an environment to ask questions that really make you stop and think about your own personal biases, your own thoughts about racism. You won't learn it until you got an environment where you have to, that's what you're focused on. Great learning. In looking back on it, how could I not afford to take that time off to go and be in this workshop? Because as Ronnie said, the long-term return on that time investment is just immeasurable. And even though the three of us may be retired, we're still plugged into a lot of different things. We're still active. So we're still able to influence organizations or people in ways that's going to have positive outcomes because we have gone through this experience and we have just developed even more of it with time. And I think the last thing is that this is not about feeding in anyone's guilt or making anybody feel angry or this is not a beat up session. This is self-discovery. And as Ronnie has said, 
it's the kind of self-discovery that will enrich your life in so many ways with those who you love the most. My final thoughts are, I, I can't speak to where, Michael, you folks are with the work that you're doing today and looks <laughs> compared to my experience. But what I will say to somebody listening who's contemplating spending some time on these issues is that if your focus is your business and doing better as a leader, then figuring out how much time you are going to spend on really making your workplace inclusive in a way that builds on business success is just a no-brainer. And if you hadn't figured that out, you're going to be successful whether or not you go. So you know in your own heart whether or not you believe that working on developing your team in a way that allows everybody to participate to the full extent of their abilities, that's what it's all about. And find what it is and spend time on it. And I can tell you from my own experience, I ended up in a much better place and my business ended up in a much better place for the work that I put in. A lot of it was painful. Some of it was mistakes. I did take two steps forward and three back sometimes, but you will not be disappointed for investment in this area. Mm -hmm. Thanks for all three of you for that thought. I mean, a lot of people want to see the data quote unquote, what's the data that this is going to have a long term, but you know, what's the result on productivity? What's the, and it's hard because that's never been pinned down or measured. So complex, but your stories are reflective of that. It's there. So appreciate the honesty, the sharing, appreciate hearing and being able to witness your journeys, Frank, Ronnie, and Pete of these past 20 years and that you're still at it. You're still passionate about it. It's still fresh. It's a tribute, and um, it's an honor to know all, all three of you. So thanks for your sharing today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFTP and FTP Global, visit wmftp.com slash podcast.